Hello, friends. Welcome to Kirk Your Enthusiasm, one of the rare times in season where I'm talking with somebody that isn't my co-host, Josh Bo. Today, I am joined by someone who, if you don't know who he is, you haven't really been paying much attention. He's currently national writer at the Washington Post. He is one of the co-hosts of one of the best basketball podcasts on the internet, greatest of all talk, and the author of Bubble Ball. Today, I am joined by Ben Golliver. How are you doing, man? Doing well, man. Got a little bit hungover from All-Star Weekend, not in the alcohol sense, but just in the like headspace sense. Uh, it was a lot going on, all leading up to like a pretty disappointing All-Star Sunday night, which I think has been rightfully killed on the internet for the last 48 hours. So that at least helped me stabilize a little bit to realize I wasn't just by myself feeling like it was a just a complete waste of time in, in the actual All-Star game. But, uh, you know, doing good. Back in L.A., ready for... Russell Westbrook's debut with the Clippers probably later this week and and the Lakers playoff push, all sorts of good stuff going on out here. So I've, you know, I've bothered you on and off for several years just because I enjoy your content. I'm a longtime listener to y'all's podcast, but I've never actually asked to have you on. And what finally kind of sprung that leak to, to have me reach out was you were front and center for one of the biggest, it looked like the biggest scrum of NBA All-Star Weekend with uh, new Dallas Mavericks guard Kyrie Irving. And, you know, I've, I've, you know, having listened to you for years, you seem to have a fair number of strong opinions on Kyrie. And thus far, the Dallas Mavericks experience with him has been, it's been nice. I, I don't know. It's, it's been mostly basketball. He's had some pretty straightforward statements where he's like, I don't really want to talk about my free agency. And then, you know, he he got to All-Star and gave, you know, he, he a, a soliloquy of sorts to every single question he was asked. And, or you know, I, I sort of wanted to get your read on the situation with him right now because he seems like he's, he's on, you know, good behavior. Behavior's not really fair, but he wants a new contract. So it's in his interest to sort of make nice right now. And, you know, with what he had to say at All-Star break, I was wondering sort of what you think about where he is right now. Well, I think you take it all the way back to 2010. It's the first time I ever came across Kyrie Irving. It was at the Nike Hoop Summit, which is like a, you know, a showcase event for high school prospects to play against, uh, you know, international prospects. And it's usually, uh, it's a really good scouting event. And often the players who are in that event, if they star there, they go on to be like the number one pick, number two pick, number three pick in the draft, like a year and a half later. Right. So um, Kyrie was like the best player in that class. I think it was like him and Harrison Barnes. At that point, you know, he had committed to Duke and he was really interested in media studies of all things. Like huh. he, he, was, he was almost like the CJ McCollum idea of like, oh, I'm going to have a media career and a basketball career. He's very charismatic, very charming. And, you know, when he started doing the Uncle Drew stuff and when he was the number one pick in the NBA and he's like, uh, you know, Nike's poster boy early in his career, it all made total sense because it's like, oh, yeah, you can kind of see that germinating when this guy was a teenager and obviously the guy that we see today is different in a lot of ways, but I would say the, the biggest similarity, he's a guy who's driven by his heart, not by his head. He is not this like crazy rational thinker. Who's like, everything's just got to be a, then B, then C, then D. Right. Um, he's gets caught up in the moment. He, you know, he gets ideas in his head and he just sort of runs with them. He's on this kind of perpetual path to, to find out who he is and to explore his history and to, um, you know, sometimes just go down YouTube wormholes. I mean, all those kinds of things are part of the Kyrie Irving experience. And I think he's being driven by his heart right now because I think 
he felt, you know, I, I'm, this is my interpretation. I think he felt offended by how things went down in Brooklyn in terms of them not giving him the extension that he wanted when push came to shove in terms of this idea of like his vision of we're going to co-manage the Nets, me and Kevin Durant and Sean Marks and, you know, Josiah, we're all going to be on level footing. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Like Kevin got to manage the Nets, you know, pretty much. But Kyrie, you know, he didn't get his contract. So he's a little bit, uh, you know, burned there. And then I think also, you know, he is realizing he's at a crossroads, which guys in their early 30s hit constantly, which is I'm no longer a top 10 type player. My skills are eroding a little bit. I need to prove my worth to my, you know, potential employers in terms of, you know, making a contract year push. And I think uh, when he wants to turn the charm and charisma on, he can absolutely do it, right? And um, and that's what you saw at All-Star Weekend with the long answers like you're describing with the really frank talk in terms of, you know, I don't know if you want to get into what he said about trade requests or load management or any of these other topics, but he was very forthcoming. And, uh, you know, that's the honeymoon period. He has every reason to want to be in a honeymoon because uh, he wasn't able to get the deal he wanted from Brooklyn. He wants to get it from, you know, Dallas, or maybe he wants to generate a market where he can, you know, have, have some more options. But there were not very many teams interested in Kyrie Irving last summer. And I feel like that was probably an eye-opening experience for him to realize that uh, he needs to get this thing back on track. Yeah, the Kyrie Irving is a content machine. I have almost had a hard time figuring out what stuff I do and don't want our site to cover because one thing I've ran into early and I knew this, but I hadn't experienced it is the Kyrie fan base is it travels and it's huge. And the people who love him absolutely love him. So it's been, it's been very interesting to cover him so far. I will say one thing you you said st- sticks out to me and it reminds me of something that Jonathan Charks told me a long time ago. He said, what these guys want in their 20s is so different than once they get a little further into their careers. And if there's one sense of Dallas Mavericks fans convincing themselves that it will work out this time as opposed to the Nets, as opposed to the Celtics, as opposed to the Cavs, it has to be where he is in his career. And I'm really curious to see how all this plays out because, you know, there there's already kind of a, I feel like it's a little bit of a wag the dog situation. There's this push, oh, he's going to go to Los Angeles. And I am not really willing to even, even think about it yet because there's still so much, ba- I mean, 20 something basketball games to be played and then the playoffs. And so I'm just, I, I like the, the, the challenging part for me is the actual basketball when he plays is remarkable. He is a truly gifted and unique player. And I've never seen anybody like him in a Dallas Mavericks uniform. And it's just, it's a little bit frustrating that everything that comes with him often overshadows that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Look, I mean, how many players in NBA history would be able to survive an anti-vaccination season-long drama and followed up by a months-long anti-Semitic controversy and still be able to be, you know, traded, right? In any, mm-hmm. in any manner for positive value, right? I mean, that just kind of reinforces his on-court skills. Uh, if he didn't have the ability to impact games with his scoring ability, ball handling, distribution, those kinds of things, if he didn't have the ability to capture people's imaginations and get people excited and, and get them to believe in this idea of like, oh, this all-star backcourt duo with Luka Doncic, um, he would have been 
kicked to the curb a long time ago because of the the severity of these off-court uh, situations, right? I mean, the easiest comparison to make is Myers Leonard to Kyrie Irving. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, if you're Myers Leonard, you're out of the league for a year and a half and, you know, people don't want to touch you and you're persona non grata. Uh, if you're Kyrie Irving, well, okay, take two weeks off, come back, and you'll be all right. And, and uh, we'll see if we can you know, keep things going, right? So, yep. um, but it, it's not just his game. I, I think what you're talking about with the fans, it's the personality, you know, it's kind of like the cult of personality, this yeah. idea that he's this non-traditional, um, you know, superstar guy, that he's a thinker, that he's willing to kind of, uh, you know, communicate with people on all sorts of different levels and say things that other people might be thinking, but not, uh, you know, really be willing to say that unfolded gradually. I don't think he had a master plan to get here, but I remember at All-Star Weekend years ago, shortly after he had made his first flat earth comments, um, he realized how much attention he had gotten for those. I mean, you know, everybody's writing about it. All these school teachers are saying, okay, you're poisoning the youth's minds and all this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> this was the first time where, like, he was a bigger deal in a certain way than LeBron. I mean, he had been in LeBron's shadow for, like, the previous couple of years, right? When it's like, you know, guys are always comparing each other. Nobody wants to be the little brother, really. Certainly Kyrie Irving left Cleveland because he wanted to have his own team and have that kind of stage for his career, right? And I think, you know, he was, again, this is my personal opinion. It felt like he was a little bit intoxicated by the attention. And he was like, well, uh, you know, let's see if I could push this a little bit further. Let's see, mm -hmm. you know, if they'll just run with anything that I say. And he started spinning into this idea of what was almost like this media video game he was playing, where it's like, let's see, you know, are, there, are all these pawns just going to go out there and, you know, regurgitate whatever I say, no matter what. And he felt like he was trying to be the puppet master. And I think that that kind of stuff, is really what solidified his base. Because I think there's a lot of people out there, we've seen this in, in politics as well, who just don't like the establishment, right? So yes. they're always down for the anti-establishment person. There's other people who just don't like the media. So they're always down for the anti-media person, right? And you know, Kyrie Irving, when you really step back, he was the most conventional of stars ever. Number one pick, Duke University, father was a basketball player, uh, you know, uh, all-star very quickly into his career, um, winds up winning a title, Nike signature sneaker and Pepsi movie, right? It, isn't that the blueprint for any, you know, if you had like a 14 year old cousin and you, know, you, talented, <laughs> and you were trying to say like, here's, here's your path, you know, you're going to be the next one. Every single one of those things would be on that checklist, right? Really and yet point. here he goes mid-career and he spins it completely 180 degrees and says, now I'm the unconventional guy, even though I've been the most conventional star possible. Uh, it was quite the turn. And I do think, like I said, it happened kind of gradually, step by step. I think he just got more and more interested into these conspiracy theories. He was getting the positive feedback from the base that he was kind of cultivating as this uh, almost anti-hero personality. And he just kept running with it. And we, we've seen Kanye West, you know, do some similar things. There's been other players who have been able to, you know, really thrive financially with this kind of a, approach. And, um, you know, it's it's been wild to see because, you know, the guy that we see now, he looks the same. In some ways, he talks the same. He communicates the same as that teenage guy. But he is speaking a completely different language than he did, you know, when he first came into the NBA. I think the temperature will be turned down significantly from the kind of media attention that he got in Brooklyn, just the day-to-day -day coverage. There's not as many reporters. There's not as many antagonistic reporters, which I think he will, um, he, he will really probably benefit from fewer, fewer disputes and arguments and things like that behind the scenes from the sort of stuff that we saw up in Brooklyn. So I'm, I'm, 
my friend Matt Moore makes fun of me because he's like, it seems like he he said it seems like you're turning into a Kyrie guy, and I'm just you know thus far the basketball element of it is very interesting to me. It's intoxicating, and I can't. That's the part that I'm interested in. That's the part that I want to spend most of my time thinking and talking about. The other stuff is not why we do this. It's it's you know media you know you, you work for the Washington Post obviously one of the one of the you know flagship newspapers in the world but still you didn't get into sports journalism to cover a basketball player's anti-Semitic comments you got into to talk basketball and right. the things that surround it so it's I'm just I'm hopeful that the temperature turns around but I'm also kind of bracing myself for things to get weird just because of what you said with the he leads with his his heart more than his head so that that allows for kind of the next thing that I wanted to touch to touch base with you on is. So the Mavericks now have this interesting trio, Luka Doncic, Kyrie Irving, and head coach Jason Kidd. And I am very interested to sort of hear what you think about whether this can work or not with the three of them. Now, I loop Jason Kidd in because, as I've mentioned to you offline, I think one of the current Dallas Mavericks problems is that Kidd does not push Luka Doncic enough. Uh, and the Mavericks have sort of ceded a lot of things to Luca. And I'm curious as to your thoughts as to whether adding this sort of combustible but really fantastic basketball element in Kyrie can do to sort of change where this the Mavericks have, have gotten, I don't want to say gotten stuck because they got to the Western Conference Finals, but they're in this place where it feels like they, they're not moving in a direct, like they're not taking that next step. If anything, prior to this, it felt like they had taken a step back because of the loss of Jalen Brunson, et cetera. So I want to take a step back and first just say, like, you need to guard your heart. You need to guard your family's, <laughs> your family's heart. Like, it's not going to work. Whatever you're envisioning, like, thinking it's going to work, it's not going to work, okay? You go back and look at every single stop since those 2016 playoffs, the end in Cleveland, uh, you know, the start of the Boston tenure, the downfall in Boston, the start of the Brooklyn tenure, the downfall in Brooklyn. Like, the track record to me is so consistent that, you know, Kyrie Irving's Natural talents, charisma, and ability far exceed his consistency and his impact when it comes to the playoffs. And he'll give you good moments. He'll give you great games. He'll give you highlights that will blow your mind. But when you're trying to say, hey, we want to put together a winning team, we've got two all-stars in our backcourt. We should win the West, build on last year's Western Conference Finals, and and compete for a title this year. Even in a best-case scenario, I can't see that happening. And then the longer – he winds up staying. If you do sign up to that longer uh, term contract, you start to sacrifice the leverage within that relationship between the team and the player. And that's where it's going to get dicey because Kyrie's going to sort of do what he wants to do. He's taking time off for personal reasons, not really informed people. He's soured on coaches, you know, very clearly at Steve Nash. Uh, you know, there's been a, a long history of things where, uh, you know, he didn't exactly welcome James Harden perfectly. You know, they got, they got on the same page for a while on the court, but it didn't really feel like a personality match. Perhaps you blame the pandemic for that, but it, it just, you know, Harden doesn't leave for no reason within a year, you know, and I think, uh, you know, Kyrie had a role there. So uh, I would just say, again, buyer beware here, you know, keep your expectations modest, enjoy the basketball because the basketball is going to be the fun part and brace for God knows what else, you know, could have possibly come up. I mean, imagine you're the Nets coming into this season. Do you think in a million years, even after all of their experiences with Kyrie Irving, they thought that they were going to have Orthodox Jews sitting courtside at Brooklyn's Barclays Arena, to, or sorry, uh, maybe in Indiana, I can't remember exactly where that yeah. game was, protesting Kyrie Irving, protesting the organization, I mean, making them look as if, um, 
you know, they were endorsing uh, some of the ideas in that movie, you know, they could have never imagined that. And so that blindside feel, you, you sort of always have to be uh, braced for that. But in, in terms of the trio of personalities you're describing, uh, we're seeing a huge trend in the NBA towards placating superstars, keeping mm. people happy, right? So look at Atlanta yesterday, a fire Nate McMillan. Well, Nate McMillan's not, you know, he's old school. Right. So if Trey Young and Jante Murray aren't working, well, first of all, get rid of the old school GM. Right. And bring in Landry Fields, who's a young GM, uh, you know, former player who's going to be able to talk the player's language. Right. And then get rid of Nate McMillan. He's old school. And then, you know, I, certainly whoever they hire is going to be younger and more flexible uh, if as their next coach than Nate McMillan was. Right. This is a trend that we've I mean, the Clippers, let's bring in uh, Russell Westbrook because he's buddies with Paul George. The entire Nets experience, you know, from start to finish was all about this. So this is a very common trend that we're seeing. Um, and I think with Jason Kidd, you know, the pros are instant credibility with superstars because he's been there, right? It's That's why Paul George likes Russell Westbrook, because those guys are sort of like Harvard alumni. It doesn't really matter how they got to Harvard, but hey, we're both Crimson men, right? So we're mm-hmm. going to take care of each other. So you're going to have that element uh, with Jason Kidd towards both Kyrie um, and towards Luca, he's going to have that internal credibility. Uh, and then you're, you know, I think on the downside though, uh, you're going to, it's very tricky to manage that relationship. You have to be the good cop and the bad cop. And Steve Nash was completely unable to be the bad cop. He ceded all authority towards his star players. And when you're looking at the construction of the roster, uh, you know, it's like very hard for Jason Kidd to try to get on these guys and say, oh, you got to really play great defense. You know, you got to, right, because half of them are really bad. Postseason. Right. <laughs> Who's good on defense of the team, right? So it's like it, not a it's single player. For, yeah. So you could like scream and ran and rave at halftime, but you're still dealing with Christian Wood, Luca, and uh, Kyrie Irving on the defensive end, right? So what I sort of envision taking place in the short term, and I don't mean this as uh, and as a pejorative, but it might sound that way. I think it's going to be a basketball carnival, man. Like I think they're just going to try to go out there and be more entertaining and more potent and more explosive offensively than whoever they play, and if it works. Great. If it doesn't work, oh, well, at least we had a good time. Engage the fans. You know, at least we're not that team where Luca has no help. And the whole story is about Brunson leaving for nothing. Uh, You know, so to me, they did a very effective job of changing the narrative of their franchise here by by making this bet. But I don't actually think it made them all that much better in terms of improving their title odds. And uh, I'll, I'll just say this. I've been betting against Kyrie since 2016. If I was really betting real money, I would be a rich man. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, that, that's part of the reason why I'm so confident and I'm trying to like, you know, urge caution on your behalf because he has found a way to kind of just fall short in different places and with different teammates and with different situations. Very, very consistent. Yeah. He's, he's played with some of the best basketball players of the era and that it worked out once on a miraculous game seven shot. And it's not to take anything away from the moment, but it that that shot has bought ten years of goodwill, and I understand why it's one of the best Absolutely. shots in history. But he it deserves me, it. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, he, he he earned it. I mean, no one else has. I mean, you could argue it's one of the biggest shots in NBA Finals history, right? I mean, sure. Ray Allen, I guess, would be up there too. But um, I guess if you're trying to say is this going to work in Dallas, you can't base that premise on the very best moment of his career. You got to find the baseline. And the baseline's a lot lower than people think, and it's a yeah. lot lower than the Kyrie stands thing, right? Because the Kyrie stands are saying, this guy, he's the most devastating one-on-one player in the postseason. No one wants to guard him. If you go back and watch that tape, Nets versus Celtics, 
uh, last year, he gave you one good game out of four, you know, the other three, he was just non-existent. He checked out his heart wasn't in it. And so he wasn't in it. And that's something that you do have to worry about. Oh, Kyrie, he just dominates a lot of the thinking, but I did, you know, one of the things I, I, I listened to you and your co-host Andrew Sharp talk about on the GOAT podcast was kind of a, when you were discussing your own all-star things, one of the things you talked about was a lot of where you see, I don't know if it's stagnation, because I don't think that's right. Luca's a, a, a fringe MVP candidate for, for a lot of people, but just sort of a little bit of, of you want to see more from Luka Doncic. And I, I'm just sort of of the point, and I've, I've been here for a couple of weeks. It's taken me a while to get to this point. And Jonathan Abrams wrote a really, it was a nice profile for the New York Times about Luka Doncic. And in the piece, he, he got some quotes from Luka's former coaches over Real Madrid and, 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 you know, from when he was younger. And it seemed that Luka really, really, really thrived on being challenged, as a lot of the greats do. And I guess where I'm sort of confused about is how franchises and the Mavericks in particular, because this is the Mavericks podcast, have gotten so concerned with upsetting their superstar that they that they don't push because it's it's you know asking Luca to play a little bit better defense is just I don't think it's asking too much. I also don't <laughs> think it's something Luca's going to say no to. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um... So I think, first of all, they were probably scared off by those visuals of Carlisle Luca going at it sure. in the postseason, right? And you could make the case, and I don't, I wasn't, I was actually at some of those games where they were going back and forth, but, you know, it's completely possible for those to be healthy interactions. Now, whether they were or not, who knows? But like, if you have two really competitive people, Carlisle, very competitive coach, Luca, very competitive player, like it's okay to be yelling at each other every once in a while. You don't have to overreact to it. It seemed to me like there was an accumulation effect, and that's probably why they changed directions. But I think your point is it's difficult to imagine Kid and Luca going after each other during a playoff game publicly, right? Where it's like, sure. oh, you know, and that that does feel like a little bit of a problem. You need somebody who's going to kind of hold them accountable and be be tough. Um, so, I, you know, just to reframe what I'm looking for from Luca. You know, I would like greater defensive uh, commitment for sure. Mm -hmm. But what I would really like is better comportment on the court when it comes to technical fouls, uh, getting, you know, hustling back on defense, not yelling at the referees, not shoulder slumping, better yep. on court leadership in terms of rallying the troops, getting people excited. This is a five man game, not a one man game when, it, when times get tough. Um, I would like to see, um, you know, and this helps. This is a big help with Kyrie coming greater trust in his second and third options where it doesn't have to be this crazy, crazy sky high usage where it's okay to let other guys have some possessions and you find ways to kind of help out around the edges. Ultimately that will save Luca, um, you know, kind of working smarter, not harder where, yep. you know, he, that way he's going to be more efficient in, in the time that he has the balls. So those are the main areas that I kind of want to see improvement from him. I generally trust Luca's competitive drive because I mean, the guy's a maniac. Like he, he really, really wants to win. He wants the ball in his hands in big moments. Like he is, you know, an ideal franchise player of everybody under 25. I think he'd be my first pick in, in terms of a franchise player, but he needs somebody to say, Hey, look at how Steph Curry mm -hmm. inspires his teammates. You know, look at how Giannis kind of brings the group together. Look at how some of these, you know, guys maintain their calm in the big moments, as opposed to like flipping out and losing their mind, which, you know, consistently happens for Luca. So, um, you know, those are kind of the, the adjustments I want to see from Luca, And I don't think that those have to be 
some, you know, dictator type coach getting through to him on that stuff. I mean, it's almost more like ownership, his people, agent, let's all sit down and talk about it and come up with a plan for how we can do this. And and this is this is sort of a thing for me personally, and I've experienced this in my in my day job. I'm a database manager. I've worked at a number of different companies, and one of the things that sort of drives me nuts is when people misunderstand that it is conflict is actually okay. It can be beneficial in certain situations because, particularly in competitive endeavors, because if you're not disagreeing now and again, then there's not necessarily some potential for for growth and, and, you know, reframing of, of positions. And I think that, you know, Mark Cuban in, in sort of has this idea of the, of a workplace where people need to be Mavs for life. And I think that can really work counter to the way sports works because you build like teams rise and fall. You're not always going to get along. You're not always going to be happy with one another. And I think that notion has sort of overtaken the way he's built this team because he wants to have a kid or a Jason kid coach for 15 years. But you know what? He held, I think he held on to Rick Carlisle for five years too long. I think he held on to Donnie Nelson for five years too long. And so as I'm thinking about this with like team building things, it's, it's the, you know, look at the starters. Like, frankly, until they moved on from, from Dorian Finney-Smith, they had five of the same rotation players in 2023 that they had when they traded for Chris Stapp's Porzingis in March of 2019. That's unheard of in today's NBA. And it's just, it's, it's one of these things that's been rotating around in my head. And you're, you know, like you cover so many teams and think about this stuff from a big picture. And I just, I don't know, I'm rambling at this point, but it's, it's, it's something that I, I worry about as like the overcautious nature of, of this Mavericks team. Yeah, um, no, totally. I, I I was sitting around, I think I wrote multiple blurbs or columns over the last 12 months, basically saying Dallas faces more pressure than almost any other team to just shake it up because your message to Luca, if you're so concerned about not offending him and not, you know, angering him and keeping him in town and having him be the next Dirk, if those are your goals, you can't just trot out the same starless supporting cast and lose Jalen Brunson, you know, in sort of the first big move of um of Nico Harrison's tenure and just think Luca's going to be cool with that forever. Like that's, mm-hmm. you know, because he's going to look around and say, well, Trey Young got DeJounte Murray, right? Anthony Edwards, he got Rudy Gobert. You know, he's going to look around. Now Kevin Durant's going to play with Booker and he's going to say, well, how come I, you're not bringing any of these guys to me? So I think that, um, I do think it's important to try to put yourself in Mark Cuban's shoes or Nico Harrison's shoes though, because Luca is worth so much more to the Mavericks than vice versa, right? And so it does put you into this um, power imbalance dynamic where it's like you have to try to read his mind. You have to try to like read what he's going to be thinking a year from now, two years from now, to, to make all of your decisions sort of around this idea of, yes, we're trying to build a te- uh, title team, but we're also trying to build and construct um, an incubator where Lucas is going to be happy forever. And right. it's only gotten more challenging here over the last five years. I mean, we were, we were discussing this on the greatest of all talk. Like we're almost into the one and done era for superstars, right? Where it's like Harden's in Houston, then he's in Brooklyn, then he's in Philly. He might leave again this summer, right? It's like, that's a four year college you know, window. And he could be on four different teams during that window. Kevin Durant, you know, I mean, is there any guarantee he's going to be super happy in Phoenix and play out the rest of his contract there? Well, not based on what we've seen here over the last couple of years, could Kyrie go to the Lakers? It's not inconceivable, right? I mean, like, I think he would want the trade to Dallas because he felt like that's a place that he could play, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. But crazier things have happened, right? So um, 
it's a really tough spot for modern executives and modern owners to be. And I do think that they tend to err on the side of, um, you know, whatever the superstar wants, whatever we think the superstar might want. And that's going to eventually, uh, you know, potentially get you into some trouble. I think the, the most successful stars right now, Steph, uh, Giannis, and you can even throw Tatum into this mix are the guys who are like, look, let the GM do his job. Let the owner do the, their job. Let the coach do their job. I'm going to show up and be a basketball player, a leader in the locker room. I'm not going to try to play all these other games. And I'm going to trust that if we keep a good group together, we're going to be able to win big. And I think, uh, you know, for Dallas, the, the question to me is how many guys on this current roster would be capable of being a part of a title team? I'd be curious <laughs> to hear what you have to say on that, because I think even after the trade, it's possible that you've still only got one and it's Luca. I, it's really something I team building has been my bugaboo. I wish I had a time machine to go back and remove Donnie Nelson from the Mavericks front office after they drafted Luca in 2018, because every move they've made since has not really worked out very well. And it's uh, problems begetting problems to where they just made a very risky trade using a 2029 first round pick to, to go ahead and do so. And if, if this trade doesn't work, there's a reasonable position to take that neither Luka Doncic, Nico Harrison, or Jason Kidd will be there when that pick comes to fruition. And that's just that it's not frightening because it's so far away, but it's, it's an uncomfortable position to, to be in. So. But that's why you see so many teams uh, take on that discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, look, we could be screwed anyway, six or seven years from now, this guy just decides to leave. So we have to mortgage our entire future. That's true. I mean, Really, look what Phoenix gave up for Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant hasn't had a healthy season since the 2019 finals when he, uh, you know, basically ripped up his Achilles. He's played awesome when he's healthy, but he's in his mid-30s. Right. Um, he didn't get out of the first round last year. He hasn't made the conference finals since 2019. And they just gave up four for their, their entire draft pick history, basically, for the next almost decade, uh, you know, in terms of first round picks. And, you know, a guy in Mikhail Bridges who could be an all-star next year, like, that's a serious, serious price. And so we're seeing an awful lot of mortgaging going on. And what's driving it is the, the influence of this very select superstar class and the paranoia about keeping those guys happy. Yep. Well, I've kept you longer than I intended to. I apologize for that, but this is outstanding stuff. If you guys don't subscribe to the GOAT podcast, I just have to make the recommendation to do that. While I'm here, I also may have to make the recommendation to actually just go buy the Stratechery bundle, which the GOAT podcast is now a part of in, in hilarious sense. I spelled out to the Maz Moneyball staff just the myriad of podcasts that you get when subscribing to the Stratechery bundle. But GOAT is, is one of my staff's favorites. You and Andrew have great chemistry. I've never had Andrew on because he has mean things to say about Luka Doncic and I don't <laughs> want to get into an argument with him on the air. Um he 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 has terrible Luka takes because he was a Aiton guy and he just can't he won't ever back off. It's it's my favorite thing. So yeah, I mean, I try to jab about that eight and palm, you know, I, about every three months. Uh, it's it's a sore spot, so I don't want to I don't want to do that behind his back on nah. your show. But right. I think you guys need to go Lincoln Douglas on Luca right in the middle of the postseason run, uh, because imagine if you had done that last year after, let's say, like game four of the second round series. It might have been the sweetest moment of your life, Kurt. It's you amazing. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, guys, subscribe to the GOAT Podcast. Subscribe to the Washington Post. I do as well. Another great newspaper. Ben, do you have anything you want to plug before you go? 
Um, no, I, you were very thorough in plugging for me. So I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> Bubble Ball, you can buy the book on Amazon. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a Lucas section in the book actually. Because of Bubble Ball. But if you haven't read Bubble Ball, we're now so far away from what happened there is it feels like it happened in another timeline. It's, oh, yeah. it's such an incredible point in history. It's so cool that you wrote that. How long were you there? So I, I was in the bubble for 93 days. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was a long go. I've, I've said, and I put this in the book, that I'm never going to go back to Disney World. But now I've thought, do I do like a 10-year anniversary reunion where I go back and rent my same hotel room and just give myself PTSD? Like, would that oh be uh, maybe film it for like TikTok or something? I don't know. It's But uh, there's a Lucas days. section in the book is what I was trying to say, because he hit that shot against the Clippers. It mm. was like one of the best moments of the entire bubble. So I... I talked about that. There's some Larry Bird comparisons from Carlisle. Like, like you're saying, it's a time capsule, man. I think uh, Mavs fans who like want to remember back before there was questions, you know, there was no questions about Luca at that point. Cause That's he right. was a wonderkin completely. And uh, it was, it was a great time. Yeah, I, had well, a, I had a good, good time. Check the link to the show notes. I'll post bubble ball in there along with where you can find Ben on everything. Thanks so much, buddy, for, uh, for taking the time with me and uh, maybe we'll do this again next year. All right. My pleasure. And let's just hope we get Suns versus Mavs in the playoffs again, because I can promise you I'll be covering that. And that would be a wild series this year. All right. Have a good day, guys. Thanks so much for hanging out.